Today's central text comes from Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him for who will be genuinely, genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Ephaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honors such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jonathan. Hey, good morning. I want to say happy fall. I know it's been fall since the third week of September, but it feels like it now, doesn't it? I woke up yesterday and I'm like, I just want to pumpkin spice up my life now with this weather. I don't know how to say it. So, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in June of 1939, uh, after a series of, of, of getting telegrams from the United States, uh, where he was getting invited to come and give lectures at universities and at, you know, different summer conferences, uh, decided to go to the United States because he thought, you know, this is going to be a really good thing for the Confessing Church that's in Germany. And if you don't know what the Confessing Church was, the Confessing Church was, were those who were holding on, that weren't con- joining with the rest of their countrymen and joining with Nazi ideals. They were resisting, resisting all of that. So he thought this would be a really good thing. But to get through security, those telegrams that got to him, they had to be veiled So none of them actually said how long they wanted him to stay. So when he got to the United States, he realized those who had invited him wanted him to stay in the U.S. for three years. So he realizes he's facing this huge dilemma because, you know, he's a leader. And the church really did need him. And they were facing incredible pressures at that time. And so he realized he made a mistake. And he wrote Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote him a letter, and he wrote it, part of it. He said, I've come to the conclusion that I've made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people in Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And much to the surprise of people who invited him, he left. He left. He returned back to Germany, and if you know anything about his story, what, did that, what happened that cost him everything? What do we, what do we call that? 
Friends, that's character. That's character. You know, the talk of character, let's, let's admit it. The talk of character has kind of slipped into the background through the last several decades, right? I mean, it's not like that we're anti-character, but the talk of building character, it feels a bit trite, doesn't it? It can kind of feel a little bit old-fashioned, but whether you're a Christian or not, one thing that we're really good at doing, we're very adept at doing, there's a cry of the human heart right now, and we're asking for it in others. <laughs> we're very quick to cry, you know, lack of character in others and in leaders and religious leaders, political leaders. So we know something's missing, but within Christian communities, to talk about building character, there's that fear that this is going to sound very moralistic or uh, legalistic. And for the average non-Christian, we don't, the average non-Christian doesn't really touch about character, but more about being a good person. And even building, being a good person is less about how you live, the aggregate of your whole life, but more about, do you believe all the right views that make you a good person? Part of that is all of us, from childhood onward, we have been shaped and we have been fashioned more than anything else in life. Our top priority, really more than anything else, is building a glowing resume of accomplishments, seeking clicks, likes, attention online, all these different things. We, we are shaped and fashioned to build a life more for what can open up doors for us and what we can write about ourselves versus what people write about us when they eulogize us. But see, you know, Bonhoeffer, in this passage in front of us, really challenges us to consider, have the years of following Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, has, has there been a wake of character transformation in our lives? Has there truly been this undeniable transformation of our characters? We're in a series titled Defiant Joy, and each week in this series, we've been using different iterations of the word defiant, and I for those who've been in and out, I want to be clear, when we say the word defiant, we're not talking about being obstinate or rebellious. What we're talking about is what it means to be countercultural. And so this week, what we're looking at is what is defiant character? What would it look like for us to take really seriously what is in front of us in this passage to really live more for a glowing eulogy than it is a glowing resume? So there's three things we're going to look at this morning. What does ultimately what is character after? What does it seek out in life, too? Mistaking competency for character. That's one of our great challenges. This is what we've been shaped to do more than anything else. And we often, that's why there's so many problems with this sometimes, because we choose so much more this. We're all attracted to that. And then lastly, how does the character of God change us? So this is not a moralistic sermon. This is all about the gospel. So what does character seek mistaking competence of your character and how the character of God changes us. So let's, let's just dive in here. Now, if you were at our Monday Bible study, which was just a handful of you, some of you are surprised that we're preaching on this because I, I said early on throughout this series, I'm not preaching this passage, okay? There's, like, there's no direct teaching in this passage. In fact, even on Monday, we didn't even cover this. Someone said, if you are going to cover it, just get Steve to do it, you know? <laughs> like, give him the bad passage, you know? Like, I thought, like, there's no way, there's a 0% chance I'm preaching this passage because if you, if you were paying attention when Jonathan was reading, this is the kind of stuff you see at the end of New Testament letters. It's a travel log, okay? Here's 2,000 years ago, people's travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus. There is no direct teaching. What in the world do we have possibly 
to learn from this, okay? But here's one of the interesting things here. Um, one of the ways we can understand why this passage, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why is this passage right here in the middle of the letter rather than at the end? And it's all scholars really point out, and that's why we're doing the passage. It was unavoidable after I started doing a little research is Paul is fleshing out everything we have been talking about over the last four years. Now, here comes another warning I gave last week. We're about to get in the weeds, so if you have a full bladder, maybe this is the time to take care of it. We won't judge, okay? If you want to contribute to your bladder, take another sip of coffee. You might need it. I want to sort of briefly review what has he been trying to do. And since the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter 1, he, he mentions this phrase right here, only let your life be worthy of the gospel. And if you were here three or four weeks ago, we realized that's a terrible English translation. Because all along what the Apostle Paul was saying, let your life be worthy of your true citizenship. That is, that is everything that the original Greek really points to. And why does that matter? Why, why would we make such a big deal about it? It's because if you understand the context, Paul was writing to one of the most important Romans cities in, in the entire empire. Remember what we've said? Philippi is where all the Roman soldiers moved to to retire and live out their days. They flew the flag. Roman nationalism was like the ethos of this city. And your identity was you know, built up in being, I'm a Roman. I'm a Roman citizen. This is my identity. And Paul was doing something radical, and he was refusing for them to take on that moniker because he was saying, if Jesus Christ really did die and resurrect from the dead, then when he ascended into heaven, you know what he did? He took a throne. And what that means is, is Jesus is on the throne now, and his kingdom is at hand now, right here in the city of Philippi. And so when you're sitting there and everybody's saying Caesar is Lord, you have to understand you can't say that because you're living in a kingdom that is in this world now and not yet. It's not of this world. And Caesar's not Lord because Jesus is on his throne. And so there's all these implications of that reality. Take another sip of coffee. One of the major implications, he's saying, if, if that's true and you are believing that and you're living that out in your life, what are some of the fruits of what you'll do? One of the major things you'll begin to do is you'll be the kind of person that is living your life seeking and cultivating unity in your community. I mean, one of the ways to be a radical, countercultural movement of God, that's what Paul's trying to say here, one of the ways to defy the cultural norms more than anything else is to be this community that is so radically different from the rest of the world because we're the kind of people, in the first century, as Paul is saying, is that we seek out the interests of others. And so he's laid out this great blueprint of how we have been seeing how to seek unity. That was countercultural in the first century. And of course, that's countercultural now in a very divided culture. And so for the first century and the 21st century, some of the things Paul has been saying is over and over and over again, one of the first things as if you're a Christian, you're sort of seeking to squash out in your life is this life, live for yourself. Squashing selfish ambition. He used the word vainglory. And what that means is, is this, that all of us in the room, we are all like cut flowers. We look good. <laughs> we appear to be doing well. But there's just this deep... <laughs> unavoidable, embarrassing thing that none of us wants to admit is that there is this radical cutoffness in our life going on. There is this, this radical emptiness inside us in which 
we all go out into the world and we are seeking to be filled by experiences. We're seeking to go out in the world and pat our resumes so big that others look at us and we say, now, don't you see, you have to love me. Look at me. Look at my posts on social media. Look at me. Feel me. See, envy my life. And Paul's been saying, if you've been transformed by the gospel, this begins to work in reverse. Now, how does that happen? As one is there's this, this constant sense of this emptiness, but that's being addressed in Christ because you're being filled with his glory. And if you're being filled with his glory, then you're, you're entering this community where now all of a sudden you're being united to people who are so different from you. And you don't have a lot in common with them, but because you're so filled with Christ and you're unified, not by your citizenship in Rome, but actually in, by being a, a Christian, then you're actually seeking out others, okay? So that's the other thing. Seeking out the interest of others and actually living for others. Instead of coming to others to fill you, you're actually seeking to pour into those. Now, what does any of this have to do with Timothy and Epaphroditus in one of the most unpreached passages in the New Testament. Uh, David Brooks. Has anybody heard of David Brooks? He's sort of a cultural commentator. He's written a book. I think he's on, is he on PBS NewsHour. I, I don't watch PBS a whole lot. Uh, but he wrote a book, I think maybe five, six years ago, called The Road to Character. And if you see his face, maybe you recognize him now. And he said this. And regarding character, he says, we don't become better because we acquire new information, we become better because we acquire better loves. We don't become what we know. And see, that's, that's everything you just heard, basically, Paul's been saying for the last four years. Information alone cannot really bring transformation. More knowledge doesn't actually bring real change Paul has been saying the main way a Christian really changes is do you know him? And being known by him and by having our loves in order, when truly our lives is, are being spent by being absolutely transformed by the love of Christ. I mean, this is where we're, when we're cut, we're, this is what we're bleeding out. When we're hurt, this is where we're going. When a life is doing that over and over and over again, it begins to show up and a radically different-looking character, and that's what we see. Timothy, we don't know a lot about Timothy. He shows up, you know, uh, in the New Testament, of course, but what we do know about this is the Apostle Paul was in prison, and we've been saying this over and over again. In, Ro in Roman prisons, there wasn't provisions. There wasn't water. There wasn't food, and if you didn't have friends from the outside, what would happen is you would die. And so here's Timothy and this is a man who's got a lot working in his life. He's known, he's educated, we know that. Uh, he's got a lot of influence, but here's a man who's all of a sudden putting his entire life on hold, not just by going to the just visiting <laughs> section of prison, but actually by going inside the very prison walls and sitting next to Paul. And he's treating the Apostle Paul, a man who's been like a spiritual father in his life, and he's treating him like a father. You know, Timothy would have been literally bathing Paul. He would have been feeding Paul. Paul's in stocks and chains. He'd have been giving him water. And here's this man who's got all of these things working in his life that, that, that are very competent. But of all things that Paul speaks about him is one, he sees and, 
in Timothy's language that he's spending his life genuinely concerned for this church in Philippi. His whole life is on hold. He's hurting his own career in a sense, and he's spending his life caring for Paul, concerned for others, and Paul uses this word here, this word proven worth, and that is the Greek word character. And it only appears in just a handful of places in the New Testament. It appears right here in Romans. And how do we get it? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Merriam-Webster literally says, what is character? It's the aggregate. It's the aggregate of your moral qualities by which a person is judged apart from their competencies, apart from intelligence, competence, special talents. Character, a gospel way of understanding character is not to be confused with moral perfection. Character's the long game. Character, a, a truly gospel-transformed character fails, but it gets up, doesn't it? it? This is a kind of character that's forged in the fires of suffering. This is a kind of character that isn't, it's not f- scared to fail in life. It takes, takes a lot of risk. It risks love, it risks rejection, it, just, it gets in the arena and gets blood and sweat all over it because it's, it's, risking, it's risking love. It's, true Christian character, it's always learning. You know, it actually, it actually, true Christian character is, is, is waking up in the morning and saying, you know what, I'd love to actually love better today. True Christian character, it's, it's the kind of thing where you've got people in your life who actually tell you the truth about yourself, who tell you hard things, and when you receive that feedback, you don't just go to self-pity or defensiveness or shame, but you listen with curiosity. Character, according to what Paul is saying, is it, it wants to grow. It, it's the, it, this is what people, when they're being actually honest at our funerals, is what they're actually going to say about us when they're being honest, because not everybody's honest at funerals, are they? No, they're not, right? It's not to be confused with just being a good person. True Christian character has has its loves in order. It's, It's going back to the gospel and responding to it over and over and over again. And that's what we see in this man, Timothy, Paul is trying to put flesh and blood on these things because they knew Timothy as a person, and they also knew this man, Epaphroditus, who we don't know a whole lot about, but we do know that this whole, this whole letter comes about because Epaphroditus was sent from Philippi to Paul in prison to give a monetary gift to help Paul to survive. But somewhere along the way in the journey, we don't know where this happened. could have happened during the prison, but Epaphroditus darn near dies going on this journey trying to help Paul and trying to help this church by giving a report. And here's a man whose life's been shaped by suffering uh, and character shaped. And what do we learn? Literally, here's this man who's near death. And literally, here's another. I'm sorry to throw so much Greek at it this morning, but literally, the only other place this word distressed appears is the same words that Jesus uses when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's talking about being in sorrow upon death where blood is coming out of his pores. He's under so much emotional turmoil. Here's a man near death. And he's so emotionally 
captivated by others because they think he's afraid that the church in Philippi thinks he's dead and it's, it's bothering him. And here's Paul, okay? And here's Paul, and he needs help from people. He needs Epaphroditus. And you know what he does? Here's a letter where Paul is talking about defiant joy over and over again with very, very hard life circumstances, and we don't see much of anything coming out of Paul other than joy. And yet the only time we hear sorrow coming out of Paul is when he's talking about others. When he's talking about losing Epaphroditus, he's torn up. And yet, where's his joy? His joy is coming back to him that he just, he's imagining the fact that what joy will come upon all the people when Epaphroditus finally makes it back to the church in Philippi and people think he's probably dead. They're probably giving him the nickname Lazarus. They're like, wow, welcome back. Here he is alive and everybody's joyful and rejoicing. This is what Paul's doing. He's giving us a picture of flesh and bones what lives poured out for others actually look like. Here's the challenge, right? Let's get out of the clouds because I think we've all been a little bit, okay, that was a lot. One of the interesting things is scholars point out one of their main reasons, obviously, that he did this and he put this right here in the middle is to really help us to see, you know, to give us an example of flesh and bones of what character looks like. But part of me, and I didn't hear this anywhere else this week in any of the scholars I encountered, but part of me wonders there's something else going on. And I think the Apostle Paul knows something about all of us. There is just this thing in life for all of us that we just kind of fall apart in the face of somebody who's very, very competent at what they do, a great musician, some sort of intellectual, some great athlete, you know? I mean, people go gaga for Taylor Swift. I don't get it, but whatever. Taylor, uh, apparently Travis Kelsey is too now, but uh, <laughs> all right. But we get over, yeah, I heard someone groan that that was disgusting. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. We fall down in the face of competency, and this is one of the challenges we all face. Like, here is way back in time. Samuel is coming to, the, to Jesse, and he's got all these sons, and there's this, this moment where God speaks to at Samuel directly. And he looks at him as he's trying to find out who's going to be the the next king of Israel, of all things that God says, what does he say? He says, don't look on his appearance. Don't look on the height of the stature. Why? Because how do, how do I see people? <laughs> Not as man sees, because man, what do we do? We look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what, what, what was God saying to Samuel? He's saying, don't fall for the competency trap. Don't you dare measure the worth and value of somebody based on their abilities, how good they are at something, how good-looking, what's on their resume, their aptitude. But the reality is, like, history has shown this is what Israel did. They decided to look on the outward appearance, and over and over and over again, you read a refrain about nearly every king in both kingdoms, and what is the most common refrain over and over and over about them is what? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what else happened? You had a divided kingdom. No unity. You had wars. You had corruption. Paul's bringing this up because as he's speaking about Timothy, he just kind of drops his hint in the middle. And he starts talking about, here's Timothy. He's got this genuine concern, but they, but they, somebody else, we'll talk about that in a second, 
They seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, what is he talking about? If you were here like maybe the second or third week of this series, one of the things we learned is Paul's sitting here in prison. And while he's in prison, there was this group of very competent preachers on the outside who had not been incarcerated for their faith who were speaking ill of Paul. And and what we learned then is they were preaching the gospel. And they were really good at it. And they had a great following, and they saw Paul's prison time as an opportunity to gain more followers and to hurt Paul's influence. And out of petty envy and jealousy, they were harming Paul, and they're seeking their own uh, own interests. And what is Paul saying? Highly competent, totally lacking character. Next week, when we get into chapter 3, we're going to see another thing that happens. All of a sudden, these very competent people show up at the church who are not preaching the gospel, but they've got a high pedigree. They're these Jewish scholars, and they're teaching to everybody. They're hurting the gospel. They're preaching a gospel of works. They're saying you've got to be circumcised, and people are believing it. Why? Because we have this tendency to believe when somebody's very, very competent, I have to listen to them. And it's caused division and disunity, and it really hurt the church. See, Paul's trying to make this point that we miss a lot is there is something in all of us who just puts a lot of weight on competency and less weight on character. It's why even next week Paul does this crazy thing where he, he actually shows his resume and he shows his pedigree. He says, you want to talk about pedigree? Mine's the biggest one in town. <laughs> and I consider it pure rubbish considered to knowing Christ knowing Christ. If you and I take seriously what we're seeing here this morning, then it begs the real question that in our lives, are we championing competency over character in others and in in ourselves? And I will answer that for all of us. The, The answer is yes. Why? Because let's think about it. Since we entered school when we were young, okay, when we got into sports, you started doing dance. You started doing ballet, the, the drama club, and almost everything in your life has really been shaped to make you highly competent. We will not say, and that means in the heck with character, but what we really are saying is almost all of our lives have been shaped to make us the, possibly the most competent that we possibly can be. And I'll, we'll talk a little more in a second, but I was at a cross-country meet this week with my son was competing, and this mother from another country was in town, which is here, and her son's in school with my son, and they're here temporarily. And she said, she said, wow, being a parent in America is exhausting. Exhausting. Because in Korea, you know, we care about academics, but then that's it, right? But you guys... You like to win at everything. You have to be at this event, that event, this event. I'm tired. How do you do it? <laughs> and I was like, preach it, preach it. I get it. Consider for a second, even among Christians, who are the headliners right now? If you, you know, headlining Christian conferences, authors, what does the Christian community pick? We pick the most competent, right? Of course we do. Yes, we've got podcasts decrying the rise and fall of, you know, Mars Hill. We can see that there's a problem. 
and choosing competency over character, and yet over and over and over and over again, what do our values most reflect? That we're constantly finding a way, no matter what we do, we're choosing competency over character. And I want to be clear, Apostle Paul nor I am, am not saying that somehow competencies don't matter. These aren't pitted against one another. This is not a choice between character and competency, but it is a choice between which comes first. That character actually comes first. And it's not just in what we're looking for in the leaders who lead us, but it really begs the question over and over again, am I choosing character over a life built on competency? See, Bonhoeffer would have been very justified to say in America, three years, what great experiences. The church needed him. He needed more wisdom. He needed more knowledge. He could have done all these things. And you know what? No one would have batted an eye. He, they, Christians wanted him to stay in America. But what did he choose? He was a very competent man. This is one of the more brilliant theologians we've had in the last 100 years. Competency oozing from him. But what did he choose? He chose character first, didn't he? And maybe for us, it may not result in something that extreme. But for us, there are these little choices like that result in little deaths, don't they? There's a life where you and I, we all in this room, could give ourselves radically to our careers. And there are these times where we all want that. But then there's this little thing about character that shows up, right? And we're raising these kids, and we know that if we choose our own personal competencies, our careers, over our kids, what, what's going to happen to them? But you know, right? Especially as parents in America, that means if you're going to have kids, you might have to take off of work at three to show up at a cross-country meet at Polk County at four. And then this. And you're going to make choices. You're going to make choices maybe not to take that job because you know it's going to take you away. See, what's happening in those moments when we make those choices? We're choosing. We're finding out what is a greater value. Is it character or is it competency? See, even if you're a business owner, for example, there's these moments as you're a Christian and you're a business owner, you actually have an opportunity to reinforce this even with employees who don't even believe any of this stuff. And how do you do that? Well, you could also make choices. How do you, you give flexibility to working parents? Do you give a generous maternity leave for working moms? Or are you implicitly communicating that you're just going to have to take a, a loss there? See, there's all these little things we could do, right? All these tiny little things. If you're single, right? One of the things you face is if you get married and you choose to have a family, all of a sudden, what's happening? I'm not saying marriage is the definition of character building, but you're going to have to choose the interests of others over yourself if you make that choice. If you and I are raising kids, we're facing this question of what am I most want to build in my kids? Is it competency? Or is it character? Let me ask a very annoying question to those of us who are parents. If you had the opportunity right now, if you had the money, and you had $10,000 you could spend a year on your kids' education, and for $10,000 someone would say this would make them the most competent they possibly could be, it'll open every door. I'm talking Ivy League schools will want your kid if you, if you spend that money here. Or if you had the choice, that same amount of money, $10,000, to build character. May not open those doors, but it'll make them a person more like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a Timothy Epaphroditus. What, what would we choose? 
Again, the choice of character is not to mean you immediately get rid of competency, but there will be losses. There will be a loss of opportunities choosing character. If we make competency, number one, emphatically, there will be a loss of character. Abraham Lincoln said this, character is like a tree and reputation like a shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. And unfortunately for almost all of us in the room, it's not until we are at death's door that we actually finally see, dang it, I was living for a shadow, not a tree. Those are the only ones who most see. (laughs) And so how do we then, all of this has been leading all morning to really press into something we don't really talk much about, is it, and it might sound cheesy, but am I living for a resume or a eulogy? And the reality is, is only in the gospel we can see that we actually must choose the eulogy over the resume. And how do we do that? How do you and I actually change? David Brooks, again, I will repeat what he said. He says, we don't become better because we acquire new information. We become better because we acquire better loves. We don't become simply what we know. And that's why Paul would say we become who we know and who we are known by. Paul shared this brief interlude, the unpreached interlude, to tell us about two forgettable people, but yet here we are 2,000 years talking about them, who lived commendable lives, Timothy and Epaphroditus, people whose names have not been forgotten. What was Paul doing right here? He was writing a living eulogy for these men. And we're reading about them today. And why? Because they live for others. But how and why? Because they saw what you and I must see. Character is not formed by knowing more or simply by just being a better, all-around, good person. Paul is bullish here. He is saying character is formed by knowing Christ and who did this for us. What greater thing could any of us ever put on our resume to show our competencies than this? Son of God, creator of the universe. What is the gospel? What choice did Jesus make over and over again for us? What did Jesus do? See, in the gospel, Jesus reveals his true character to us because we're told back earlier in the first part, what did Jesus do? What did he do? He foregoed all his competencies in order to seek us out. He didn't just come near death's door to pursue us. He went right through it to its very end for us. There is a reason the Bonhoeffers, the Timothys, the Epaphroditus stand out to us because people like that don't grow on trees. They don't. But people like that are actually no different than anybody in here in this room. Because when a life is truly interfacing with that reality of the gospel of what Christ has given up for us and what has lasted, then the wake of a life transformed by that moves invariably towards others at costly lengths. And none of us in the room have the power to invoke this kind of character change in our lives, but we can grow wiser. We can do less self-centered things. That's all true. But true gospel-transformed character comes from believing this message over and over and not all by ourselves. 
because there's no way any of us can build gospel character. We can't do it. We talked about it last week. Unless it's forged by doing life with others. You cannot possibly move the needle in character all by yourself. There's no way. But when you have others standing in your corner, when we have others that are standing in our, in our corner, that are calling us to this character, it's transforming. When you and I have others encouraging us, pointing out that they continue to see over and over this Christ-like character showing up in the smallest details of life, we're simply more able to believe it. When we have others in our lives who can, with gentleness and humility, point out the places where we have chosen competency over character, then we have a significantly better chance of growing in character. When we have others in our, cor- our corner celebrating these character wins in our lives rather than these competency wins, when we're surrounding our people around us who are celebrating character over competency, we have a real shot when we will simply be more able to believe this gospel and the fruit of the character it builds, when we have others pointing us over and over to the character of God, his goodness, his mercy, his steadfast love, the fact that there is no condemnation, then we have a vastly better chance of believing this gospel. Do you want to have the kind of character that seeks out the interests of others? Then Paul and David Brooks would say, acquire a better love. Fall in love with the character of God. And let us, the community of God, who believe that too, help you to remember that along the way. Lord, I, I do thank you for this passage that we just so easily could ignore, and it might risk sounding trite or <laughs> moralistic, but Lord, we, I want change for all of us here. Lord, I do pray that by interfacing the gospel in community each week here, in our own times alone, and by us through suffering, their own suffering, through surrounding ourselves with people who celebrate character wins over competency wins, that we would have glowing eulogies, every single one of us in this room, by believing the gospel, by simply by trusting in your character that you have left every bit of competency for us. You considered it rubbish in a sense because you sinned knowing us of greater worth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.